Father, we thank you, we praise you for your goodness and your love to us. We thank you, O God, that you have carried us and you have sustained us and you have nurtured us even as mothers do for their children. God, you have played this role in our life. And so we thank you and we praise you, God, for your loving kindness and care. And we pray that as we open up your word, that you would use your word to nourish us and to sustain us and to strengthen us afresh today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. So in an article I read this week entitled, How Adult Children Affect Their Mother's Happiness, Author Arthur Brooks opens the article with a letter dated from 1807 from Johanna Schopenhauer to her son, Arthur. She writes, quote, you are irritating and unbearable, and I consider it most difficult to live with you. If you were less like you, you would only be ridiculous, but thus as you are, you are highly annoying. (laughs) Some of you have been looking for the right words to say to your children, and if you would like me to email you this week what I just read, I would be happy to do so. But Brooks points out in this article that the two-century-old letter amazes us not just for its mix of archaic diction and sick burns, but also because it violates some of humanity's most basic assumptions about how mothers feel about their children. And it's interesting in this article because he actually, uh, he, he, he makes the point that research has shown that typically mothers, when they have children in the home, feel a higher degree of satisfaction in their life and happiness than uh, women who do not have children. But then after the children move out of the home, the situation reverses, and those mothers who have never had children statistically find themselves reporting a higher level of happiness than those who have adult children who have left the home. And I think the reason for that, and I think what uh, he argues in this letter or in this essay, is that the reason is because oftentimes when you are pouring yourself out for your children when they're younger, you don't expect much in return. You know, it is, it is typical in stages of development that you go through a, a, a season in your life where you're primarily focused solely on yourself. You can't see outside of yourself. You don't see the needs of your mom and of your dad and all of the pain and the difficult and the hard work they're going through. All you can see is your own needs as a little one. But as you mature, you're supposed to begin to look outside of yourself and to notice and to attend to not just your own needs, but to the needs of those around you, particularly those who have poured out and invested themselves most in you, namely your parents. But oftentimes, adult children are just not in that space and they don't give appropriate reciprocal love and affection to their parents for all of the love and affection they've received from their parents. And some of you moms right now are shaking your heads exactly. You say, that's why I feel a lower level of satisfaction. Uh, but he goes on and, and the, the, the author, Arthur Brooks, um, ends the essay like this. He says, even if like Arthur, you are an annoying, selfish freeloader, Your mother is unlikely to cut you off completely. But why test her? (laughs) You can almost certainly improve your relationship and her happiness 
by taking the following advice. Don't take her for granted and treat her with the attentive love she deserves. And I want to talk to you today about not taking not only your mother for granted, but I want to talk to you today about not taking the people around you for granted. In other words, I want to encourage you today to not engage in that that deep-seated kind of viral infection that is spreading throughout our culture today, namely entitlement-itis. This idea that we are owed something from the people around us and there is really nothing that is demanded from us to give to others. And the cure for entitlement-itis, the cure for really taking other people for granted is to engage in the spiritual practice of gratitude. And so I want to talk to you today about what it looks like to become people who engage in that spiritual discipline and habit and practice of gratitude. You know, we've been in this series called Every Square Inch, and it's, it, we've been kind of unpacking this theme from Paul's letter that he wrote to the church in Colossae. And one of the sub-themes in this letter is gratitude. In fact, he opens the letter by saying, I give thanks for you all. And he ends the letter with an exhortation to continue steadfastly in prayer, giving thanks. And then in the center of this letter, he continually exhorts us into the spiritual habit and practice of gratitude and thanksgiving. And so, for example, in the text that you heard read for you before I walked up here, in three verses, three times, he exhorts us to be a people who give thanks. And he closes that section out with this exhortation. He says, verse 17, and whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, last week we unpacked this idea of what it looks like to live every square inch of life underneath the Lordship of Jesus. And we said that the comprehensive vision of Christ that we're given in Colossians chapter 1 leads to a comprehensive way of life under the Lordship of Christ in chapter 3. And one of the distinctive features of a life that is lived underneath the Lordship of Jesus is a life that is lived with continual gratitude. And one of the most important spaces for the gratitude to exert itself is in our homes. You know, it's interesting, uh, in, the, in the next little section that we're going to be diving into in the next few weeks, it, it's, the, it's the section that is often referred to as the household code. And so it speaks about husbands and wives and children and parents and servants and masters, which in the ancient world was the, the household. It was a large, extended family. It included your servants and a large group. They were all a part of the household. And so Paul is exhorting us how to conduct ourselves in these most central and close relationships we have in life. But it is significant to note that what frames the household code are exhortations to gratitude. Notice what it says in verse 17. He talks about giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then in verse 2 of chapter 4, where the household code ends, he talks about being watchful in prayer with thanksgiving. And that's because one of the most critical and essential qualities, one of the most important things to infuse our own households if we are going to have healthy relationships in the home is gratitude. 
And I want you to note in the text uh, three things about this spiritual discipline of gratitude. Number one, I want you to note that the object of thanks in our text is God. The object of thanks is God. Notice back in verse 17, he says, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, God is the object of our gratitude because God is the ultimate source of every good and perfect gift we have in life. All that we have that is good ultimately comes to us from the hand of God. You know, theologians have said that creation is gratuitous. And you know, when you, when you think about a, a movie that has gratuitous violence in it, that's a movie that has violence that is just plain unnecessary. It didn't have to be there to tell the story. It was just there. And theologians have said that creation itself is gratuitous because it is unnecessary for God. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the God he forever is with or without creation. And that's simply because God is absolute fullness within God's self. God is uncreated and uncaused. He depends on no one. He needs nothing because God in God's self is infinite love and infinite beauty and infinite goodness and infinite wholeness. And that means this, God didn't create because he was bored or because he was lonely or because there was a human-shaped vacuum in his heart that only we could fill. No, creation was not done out of selfish necessity to make up something that was lacking in God. No, creation, all of this loveliness and pleasure and delight and freedom and beauty was an act of self-giving love, an overspill of God's infinite fullness and love, which is, in him own, which is in his own self. And that means simply this. There is no sunset or majestic waterfall or powerful wave or fantastic sea creatures or beautiful coral reefs or stunning vistas and rivers and views or engaging hikes or delicious meals or beautiful arts or incredible music. By the way, I am a, I'm a Gen X pastor, so I just had to put you two up there. But Michael Reeves, a great theologian, said this, he said, there was something gratuitous about creation, an unnecessary abundance of beauty. And through its blossoms and pleasures, we can revel in the sheer largesse of the Father. You inhabit a world that is gift and grace. We live in an, in, in an enchanted universe. This is not a brute fact that we live in. And so every good thing around us is a gift from the hand of God that we ought to respond to with a heart that says, thank you, God, for all of this goodness and all of this beauty. And yet so often we take what's around us for granted. Uh, Father, Gre Father Gregory Boyle, uh, who runs a ministry in downtown Los Angeles, many of you will know about it. It's called Homeboy Industries. And uh, I was reading an interview with him recently, and he made a point about how grateful the homies are that he works with for the things that, that they receive. And he said this, 
He said, well, they're always grateful because everything is new and everything is deeply appreciated. You know, I'm always struck by that. When I first arrived at Dolores Ministry 30 years ago, if you took a former gang member to the beach or to the mountains or to the snow or something, they were just undone with gratitude. I mean, think about that. So many of the things that so many of us take for granted, they were undone with gratitude for. And the person who was interviewing them asked this, said, do you think that that gratitude comes easier to the homies because of some of the challenges that they've faced? And he replied, not just the challenges, but the deprivation. They don't take anything for granted. They've never been on a plane. They've never been to another city. They've never been to a restaurant. They haven't done the things that we take for granted. You know, it was Helen Keller who said, so much has been given to me, I have no time to ponder that which has been denied. And so the object of our thanks is God from whose good hand flows every good and perfect gift that we receive. But I want you to notice back in the text, not only the object of Paul's thanks, but the subject of his thanks, and this is interesting, the subject of his thanks is often people. You know, you look throughout the the Pauline letters that he writes to these churches, and almost every time he says, I give thanks, he immediately follows by talking about the subject of his thanks, and it's almost always people. And so, for example, in uh, Colossians 1 verse 3, he says, we always give thanks to God the Father when we pray for you. And then he says in 1 Corinthians, I give thanks to my God and always, uh, I give thanks to my God always for you. And then in Romans chapter one, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And then in Philippians chapter one, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And then he says in 1 Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you. And so the subject of his gratitude is almost always the people around him. And I thought this was interesting because, you know, if you've seen pictures of the Mediterranean where Paul lived and moved and did all of his work, it is a gorgeous location. A few years back, I spent some time in Turkey and just walking upon the shores in the Mediterranean, and it is just gorgeous. It is full of stunning beauty. And, you know, you imagine Paul at the time and place he lived in, surrounded by all this unspoiled beauty around him. And yet, it's interesting, in in all of his letters, I've never yet once found a place where he says, you know, I was on my way to Rome, and I just wanted to share with you, I just, I just thank God for the lovely sea around us. I'm sure Paul was filled in his heart with gratitude for the beauty of creation. And yet it's not the thing that he's persistently and consistently telling us about. Instead, what he's consistently and persistently giving thanks for is people. And I think his expectation is for us, I think God's expectation is for us is that the people who we will give God thanks for the most are the people who are closest to us in the household. You know, I was thinking about just how challenging this can be because very often, 
You know, the reason why it is so easy to give God thanks for a sunset or for a beautiful ocean vista or for a delicious meal is they don't talk back to you. And the sunset doesn't hurt your feelings. And yet the people around us talk back and they hurt us and they let us down and they don't meet our expectations. I was reading a, another article this, this week and it was talking about how the third most common reason for conflict in a home and in a marriage in particular is surrounding household chores. It was third only to arenas surrounding fidelity in marriage and sex, and third, it was household chores. And it said that the secret, kind of the key to a healthy, a vibrant a household had to do with chores. And at first, uh, the researchers thought that it, was, it had to do mainly with an even distribution of responsibilities. So look, you know, let's kind of make this a 50-50 proposition. You know, you take out the garbage and repair the, uh, the car when it's broken down and take care of the finances and I'll handle, you know, uh, the broken down laundry machine or whatever, you know, you kind of divide up responsibilities in the home. And the researcher said, actually, no, that wasn't it. Uh, it. It had more to do with the degree to which gratitude was expressed for the responsibilities in the home that were being taken on. And they had this little riff in the article that I wanted to read to you that was entitled, Why Doesn't He See It? Her. The house is a wreck. Why didn't you put a load of laundry in the wash, put the dishes in the dishwasher, or just take out the garbage that's overflowing? Him. I didn't notice. And then they write, we have found that this conversation resonates with virtually all of our research participants, <laughs> either as the complainer or the complained about. Complainers say incredulously, how can he or she not see it? And their partners earnestly claim that they really didn't notice the mess or don't understand why their partners are so upset. To make matters worse for the complainers, not only do their unaware partners fail to notice the dirty windows, piles of laundry, or overflowing garbage, they don't even notice when someone else takes care of these problems. It goes on. This is just kind of fun. They say, our research suggests that one of the keys to determining who will perform a specific household task is each partner's response threshold. And they, they said, you know, for example, if you take my car, uh, it takes me quite a long time before I reach a threshold where my car is dirty enough on the outside and messy enough on the inside that I'll do something about it. Now, my wife's threshold is much lower and so it doesn't, the car doesn't need to get nearly as dirty or nearly as messy for her to move to do something about it. And it goes on and it says, what happens is, is that those whose, whose tolerance threshold is low end up responding to needs quicker. They get them done, they do it. And the other person in the relationship just assumes that because they saw it and they care about it and they do it, that that's their thing. And they just start to take for granted that they're doing it. Of course, this just doesn't happen in marriages. It happens in roommates. It happens with uh, parents and children. And look, if you have years and years and years where you are exerting yourself and you are covering problems and taking care of issues and you are being taken for granted, you feel resentful and bitter. 
And that kind of entitlement just is toxic to our relationships. And so the antidote for entitlement is to respond to those who live around you with deep gratitude, to attend to, to notice, to see what is being done for you, and to say thank you, to say a simple thank you. And of course, one of the, the other reasons that, that is so, that, that gratitude begins to move out of the home is because oftentimes we move into our relationships not noticing what people are doing and what we appreciate about them. We notice what they're lacking and what we're upset about them. You know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his famous little book, Life Together, has this little section. I've quoted it a hundred times to you all. It's one of my favorite, uh, it, it is my favorite piece of writing on Christian community. But, but in, the, in the book, he talks about people who enter into the Christian community with an idealistic vision of what Christian community ought to be like. And so you come in and you have your ideal of what Christian community should be, how Christians should behave, how Christians should respond. And of course, it's not just the case that we enter into Christian community like that. We can enter into parenting like that. Here's how my kids ought to behave and respond. Or we can enter into uh, teenage and young adulthood like this. Here's how my parents ought to have responded. Here's how they ought to have been with me, and they weren't. Or we enter into relationships with roommates. Here's how I would expect a roommate to be, somebody who's sharing space with me, or siblings. Here's what I expect these other people to be for me in my life. And we have a visionary ideal of what those people should be and do. Now, is there anything wrong with having a visionary ideal of what another person ought to be and do, class? Maybe. <laughs> the problem is not so much that we have a visionary idea. I mean, I, I think Scripture itself sets expectations for how relationships should be. We ought to love each other, be patient with each other, serve each other, submit to each other, invest in each other, listen to each other. Those are all fair expectations for relationships. The problem is, is that you are not in relationship with ideal people, and you are not an ideal person. And so that means we're constantly letting each other down, and we're constantly disappointing one another. And so what can happen is, is that we enter into relationships constantly naming what the other person got wrong rather than noticing and recognizing what they got right. There's a quote from uh, a book by Marilyn Robinson that I love called Gilead, where she, she, uh, one of her characters writes this. These people who can see right through you never quite do you justice because they never give you credit for the effort you're making to be better than you actually are, which is difficult and well-meant and deserving of some little notice, right? I mean, you kind of want sometimes for people just to, like, I know I'm letting you down. I know I'm failing. I know I'm not everything I should be. But can't you just notice what I am doing? Can't you just see what I am? Can't you just see that I'm trying? 
And listen, if you are critical and you're burdening down your husband or your wife or your children and your parents with the unbearable weight of your unmet expectations, you are gonna sabotage the unity and health in your home and in your life. And of course, this happens all the time. We get into an argument. You know, I get into an argument with Alicia and what do I do? Well, I start to, in that moment, exaggerate everything she's got wrong and then I minimize everything I've got wrong. Am I the only one that engages in that effective practice? It's very helpful. Actually, it's terrible. It's destructive. But if I back off and I say, you know, this person in my life is incredible and she's beautiful and she's such a wonderful human being and and I think about her story and I think about who she is and I I think about all of her strength and and, and everything she gets right, all of a sudden it it melts down that that hardened kind of sense of self-justification because I'm engaging in the practice of noticing and being grateful for who she is. And it's true in our relationship with our parents. I mean, oftentimes there comes a point in time, sometimes in your early 20s, uh, when you start therapy and you become hypercritical of your parents. And the reason why you become hypercritical of your parents is because they're not perfect. They are sinners and they screwed up and they, they were not emotionally there for you when you needed them. And sometimes uh, they were not physically present for you when you needed them. And, and they should have been different. They, they should have, they could have done something different and you're disappointed, and you're critical. And I'm not saying that there's no place for being disappointed and grieving and lamenting what was lost. Of course there's a place for that. But listen, it cannot be the thing that you're constantly heaping on the people around you who are closest to you. It is not so much in naming what they got wrong but what they got right and appreciating them every day that will ultimately help them grow into the people that you want them to be and that they want themselves to be. And Paul knew this in the churches that he was investing in. These were not perfect people. They were difficult, hard people to be around. You can see that when you read his letters. I mean, they're full of just people that are people. And yet, nonetheless, he responds to them with this large heart of gratitude. I'm so thankful for you. I see you. I notice what's there. And yes, I'll challenge you. I'll speak truth to you. Uh, We'll be honest. We'll have real conversations. But my posture, my bent towards you is going to be, I'm going to notice you. I'm going to see your humanity underneath all the kind of the mess that's there. And I'm going to see the beauty that is there. And I'm going to call it out. And I'm going to thank God for you. And so not only the object of his thanks, it was God from whom every gift and blessing in our lives flow, including these incredible people that God brings around us. The subject of his thanks, it was people. It was the people around him. But finally, I just want to drill this a little bit deeper. Let's let's talk, though, about the particular subject of his thanks. It wasn't just the people around him. It was the gracious work of God that he was doing in those people around him. And here is the real key. It is recognizing 
that we are not in a universe that is simply this random, unfolding, closed system of cause and effect where we are just stuck into old patterns and old behaviors and everything that we've seen in the past is all that we're ever going to see in the future because that's just the way it is. To say, no, the universe is not closed. Our lives are not closed. The people around us, our children, our parents, our roommates, our friends, we're not closed. Our lives are open to the gracious and sovereign freedom of God, who in his grace and in his love is pleased to work in the lives of broken and hurting people and do something beautiful with them. This is a God who, who turns mourning into dancing, who brings beauty from ashes. And can we believe that God is at work in the people around us to do something in them that maybe all of our control and all of our criticism and all of our manipulation and everything we try to do to get people to do the things we want them to do but are insufficient. There is a God in heaven who is able to do work in people's lives that goes way, way, way beyond any of our ability to manipulate and coerce and control the outcome in people's lives. And if you're a mom and you've got kids or you're a dad and you've got kids or a grandparent and you've got grandchildren, you need to know and believe that. That God is at work in the life of your kids. God is at work in the life of your grandkids. You can trust that God is present. God is there. And you can lean into God and his gracious work to do in them what he also maybe has done in your life, which is to awaken you and to change you and to help you grow and, and, and become something other than what you, you were when you were 18 and 19 and 20 years old. Does anybody wish they were just stuck in their 19 and 20-year-old selves? Even your 24-year-old self didn't want to be stuck in your 20-year-old self, right, Jonathan? Like, we're in a process. We are on a journey, and the gracious, sovereign presence of God is with us on that journey. And we can trust that He is working in our kids' lives, and He will be faithful to continue to work and move and change and continue to show his grace and love. And by that gracious, loving presence and work in their life, he will continue to move and change them, forming and molding them and us to be the people that he wants us to be. Father, we ask that as we turn now to this practice of the Eucharist, that this would be a true Thanksgiving meal for us. God, that you would cultivate in us hearts of deep gratitude and love for you, for all of the goodness you have shown to us. And God, would you move us out toward those we love with deep gratitude for these gifts that you've given in our life. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.